I can have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 5. That's Mark, chapter 5. And we'll be taking the first 20 verses in that. You know, about a month ago, I um, did a memorial for a, a woman that was here at our church. Her name was Patty Ryan, and maybe some of you knew Patty. And Patty had come to the church a little over six years ago on a Saturday night. We used to have Saturday night services. And I just happened, rarely, to be preaching that night. And Patty came up after the message and said, I'm really convicted and I don't know what to do, but can we meet sometime and I could talk to you? And so I, I put together a team and we did a little evangelism team and went out to Patty's house. And we spent about two hours with Patty and talked to her and she had a lot of questions at the end of that, Patty prayed to receive Christ. She surrendered her life to Christ. But during that discussion, Patty shared a secret that no one knew except her husband. She had been addicted to cocaine for over 10 years, used it multiple times a day. She was a prisoner, a slave to that addiction. And in reality, the Bible says she was a slave to Satan. Now, I don't know if you know that, but there are two kingdoms there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And they both reside here on this earth. And they're in a battle with each other and there's always tension there. Particularly those that have been on a mission field. I know you guys just came back and, and you see things that you would not believe. There is darkness. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus came, he broke into the darkness. And we're going to look today in this message today. We're going to meet a man that's filled with demons, demon possessed. The devil does not want you to have victory. He does not. Last time I spoke, I was in Mark chapter four, and we saw that Jesus has power over the natural world. If you guys remember, that's the story where they get in the boat and they start to go over the Lake of Galilee and a gigantic storm hits the boat. Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping and the disciples think we're going to die. The boat's filling with water and Jesus gets up and he says two words, be still. And instantly the storm is calmed, showing that he has power over the natural world, the physical world. Now we're going to move into Mark chapter 5. And we're going to see that Jesus has power over the spiritual world, the supernatural, here in this message. But I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through this. What kind of power is ruling your life? Is it godly power or is it satanic power? Let's read the text. This is in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, but we're going to take this in segments. We're going to first read verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Let me read that. And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, day and night, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out, gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. So you have this picture here 
of the disciples and Jesus in their boat. They're coming off of this major event, right? They have just spent all night rowing. They're exhausted. Jesus had been preaching all day. They get in this boat, a major storm. They're freaking out. They think they're going to die. Okay, they escape that peril. They see Jesus do this amazing miracle. The adrenaline was high. They were working hard. These guys are done. They're tired. They're coming to the other side from Capernaum. It's about six miles. They're tired, man. They're hoping they can just eat and rest. They're going to get a time of rest and relaxation, a little downtime. They've been dealing with these you know, religious Jews and all these different problems. They almost died on the water. This is their moment. And boom, as soon as they hit land, a man with demons is there. Now it says here in Mark that they landed in a place called the Gerasenes. They need to know there's two parallel passages here. Luke 8 and Matthew 8 also spoke about this particular event. Now, Mark and Luke call it the Gerasenes. Matthew calls it the Gadarenes. And there's a reason. It's really both. This area where they land, there's this little town nearby called Garagasa. That's why they call it the Gerasenes. But it's part of a larger region called the Gadarenes, kind of like Mission Viejo being part of Orange County. It's both. And so they land there and they come ashore and you need to understand something about this area. It's in the area of Decapolis. It's primary Gentile territory, primary Gentile. But it's also commingled with some Jews that are living there, kind of interspersed throughout. But this is primary. Decapolis is primary Gentile cities. And so they're there, I think, to get away from the Jews so they can have a little downtime. But that's not what's going to happen here. You've got this man that's possessed. Look at verse 2. It says, when he, being Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. So you've got this crazy man coming down from the hills, naked, coming down, freaking out. Matthew says he's not alone. Matthew says there's two of them. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke really focus on this one man. And so that's what we're going to do here. We're going to focus on this man. It says that he lives in the tombs. He's a, a tomb dweller. He's a... He lives in a graveyard. Now, you've got to understand the, the graveyards here, the tombs are oftentimes cut out caves in the mountainsides. And so this man has been relegated to live in these tombs. He's a tomb dweller. This is like better than any horror movie, right? You can kind of just see the picture. It's kind of dark and eerie. Maybe it's a cloudy day, right? He's kind of a scary guy. And he's defined as having an unclean spirit. That means he has demons. He is possessed. He is indwelt. By demons. This man is wicked. He's as wicked as they come because it says also that he was naked. He was naked. That means he's exposed to the elements. You can kind of get this picture. He's probably got boils and blotches and he's dirty and smelly. But whenever you see nakedness in scripture, it usually means perversion. In the Levitical law, the uncovering of a person's nakedness is a euphemism for sexual sin. And we kind of see this a lot in our day and age, right? You have this picture of Charles Manson or, or maybe Jeffrey Dahmer, but this guy's a thousand times worse. There is no one in the scripture like this man. He is absolutely the power of evil is upon him. He is the picture of evil. He is fully demon-possessed. He's naked. He's inhabited by demons. And then it also tells us in verses 3 and 4, look at that. That he has superhuman strength. He says no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. 
And the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So you have this picture and what they would do in ancient times, it's kind of like back in the 30s and the 40s when they didn't have these mind-numbing drugs. When you had somebody who was absolutely crazy, what did you do? You threw them in a padded cell in a straitjacket. That's what they're trying to do here. They're tying this man up with chains and they're throwing him where nobody will go into the graveyard. This man is more comfortable living among the dead than he is with the living. But I can tell you the living are more comfortable with him being there than they are with him. This is one scary guy. And it also says that he's aggressive but that he's in torment. He is wickedly aggressive. He wants to harm people. He wants to kill people. He wants to rip you to shreds. But it says that he is tormented. Look at verse 5. It says constantly. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he's crying out and he's gnashing himself with stones, trying to take his own life, free me from these demons. This is a picture of hell on earth. He's a tomb dweller. He's got unclean spirits residing in him. He's naked, which means he's perverted. He has superhuman strength. He's aggressive and he's in torment. And he's perched up looking down. Saying, oh, they're coming into my lair. These people are coming up on a boat. Oh, goody, goody. I'm going to hurt them. You know what's amazing? The picture of this man is a real picture of what Satan is like. But Satan usually doesn't show up this way, does he? What does the Bible tell us? Satan likes to show up as what? An angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is typically Satan's MO. He likes to come to church. He likes to show up nicely dressed. He likes to sit down next to you. He likes to get real close to truth and kind of talk to you about those things of righteousness and then draw you away into unrighteousness. That's usually Satan's schemes. But this man is the picture of what he's really like. He's dirty. He's smelly. He's ugly. He tells lies. He's tormented. And he is all about destruction. The first thing that we see here is that, that this, this man, that the demonic world is about destruction. In verse 6 it says, And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. So he sits up there. He sees Jesus and these guys come down and he runs down. With this other guy, probably with him, right? They're both coming down. And it says that suddenly he sees Jesus. He sees somebody that he's known for thousands of years. And it stops him dead in his tracks. And literally at this point, what does he do? It says he falls down. The word is proskuneo in verse 6. It says he, he ran and bowed down before him. Here is a man that nobody can bind. Here is a man with superhuman strength. Nobody is strong enough to hold this man. But he sees Jesus and what does he do? Boom. He's on his face. The man went down because the demons went down. They're in worship. One thing that, that you've got to know about demons, they're orthodox in their belief. Now, demons, they want to cause havoc. They want to cause liberal theology and heresy within the church and all this, but they know who God is, and they hate the truth. James 2.19 says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. And what's interesting about this point in Mark, in Mark 5, is the demons are the only one who really know who Jesus is. 
In fact, it's not until past halfway through Mark that people begin to realize, oh my gosh, this is truly God the Son. This is truly God in the flesh, the incarnate God. You know, Jesus in Mark 1 goes to a temple and he's confronted with a man with demons. And listen to what the demons say in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. They say, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. They know. And I think there might be like a little demon network you know, that's kind of saying, hey, there's this Jesus guy and wherever he goes, he seems to be casting us out and beware, he might be coming your way, right? He left Capernaum. So, you know, these guys are kind of ready or whatever. I don't know what's going on, but they recognize who Jesus is. And verse 7 says this, crying out in a loud voice, he says, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, don't torment me. And basically what he's saying here about this, don't torment me, in Matthew 8:28, the demon spokesman said this, "Have you come to torment us before our time?" I think they're confused about the timing. Their eschatology is actually pretty good. They understand from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah is supposed to come and suffer and die, but they're not getting this point where he's confronting them and knocking them out. And they're thinking, "Well, that's supposed to be the second time, or what's this is the first time. I mean, what's going on here?" So they're thinking, "Is the timing right?" I think they're kind of freaking out right now. And they're saying, hey, don't torment us. And what they mean by torment, in Luke, he says, that, don't send us into the abyss, the bottomless pit. They're saying, don't send us there. It speaks about this both in Second Peter and Jude. Second Peter 2, verse 4, it says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. And Jude 1, 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. See, these demons are happy being in this man. They're happy being in this Gentile area where there's, where there's lots of idols and people they can torment. This, this is their playground. This is what they want. And Jesus comes and he confronts darkness. This is what he does. And I want to give you a warning, Christian. See, this isn't just for the unbeliever that does not have Christ. I think this is also a warning for the Christian when you give the devil a foothold in your life. When you play with sin and sinful habits, thinking, well, I got the protection of Jesus, right? I said that prayer back when I was three or eight or 15, but you live as the devil. And you open a door for the devil to reign torment into your life. Listen to Paul's warning in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts and deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Do you know that as believers, you can give the devil an opportunity to get a hold into your life, to worm his way in? And he loves it when you give him an opportunity with sinful habits and practices. He loves it when you hold on to anger and bitterness. Oh, he loves that one. He can just work his way in there. 
He loves it when you cheat on your taxes, when you do drugs, when you get drunk. He loves it when you cheat on your spouse or watch pornography. He loves it because now he has a way in to torment you. Don't do it. You need to repent. You need to turn. This is a picture of how bad it can get. This man is the evidence of the destructive power of demons, and they are always destructive. There is nothing good about them. They are evil, and they are bent on evil, and they are bent on your destruction. You know, two years ago, we went on a trip with Rancho Agua Viva Group down to Mexico. We do that every year. And it was a really neat one. We had a great time. A lot of people came, and the Lord was really blessing. On Saturday night, we do a church service, and 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 after I preached a message, one of the ladies from Rancho came up to me and said, Pastor Rob, can you come and pray with this woman? She says she has a demon. She's demon-possessed. Guys, I'm kind of... Right? I'm like, I don't know much about this. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I can't speak Spanish for one thing. And so I have her with me, and we go over there, and I just ask her, you, you just translate what I'm saying. The woman would not look up at me. She kept. She was almost in a fetal position on a chair, and she was kind of whimpering. I, I don't even know how to say that, but she was just kind of lowly moaning. And I put my hand on her, and she started to shake. I mean, uncontrollably shake. And I just started to pray, Lord, free this woman in the name of Jesus. And I prayed and I prayed. And finally I said, and in Jesus' name. And she just stopped and like calmed down. And then I just told this woman, I can't talk to her. I'm not even sure how to minister to her. And I had her sit next to her and pray with her. But guys, I'm telling you, there is a kingdom of darkness. And sometimes it becomes visible. Now, some of you might object and say, now this is just a myth. But I can tell you, the Bible, which is the Word of God, speaks of the devil and demons over 120 times. And whenever it does, it always speaks about it as destructive and evil. So that's the first thing we see, the destructive power of demons. And now we'll look at the delivering power of Jesus. This is in verses 8 through 13. Jesus has the power over all demonic forces to deliver us from our sin, but also from their attacks. 8 through 13, for he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send him out into the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain and the demons entreated him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now you need to remember the purpose of Mark is to demonstrate that Jesus is God, the son. In Mark chapter 1, he says, Jesus, the Son of God. And then at the end of Mark, when Jesus is crucified, you have a centurion stand up and say, truly, truly, this is the Son of God. And everything in between is pointing to that. And so here you have this picture where Jesus says, hey, what's your name? And the leader of the demon hosts that are in this man say, our name is Legion. Now, you need to understand that legion, particularly a Roman legion, was 6,000 foot soldiers. They also had 120 horsemen, and they also had a bunch of other guys that kind of helped out. We're talking thousands. It's one thing to be possessed by one demon, right? I mean, that's bad. This man is tormented by thousands of demons. This is going to be a display of Jesus' glory as God. Look at verse 10. And he, being the man, began to entreat him earnestly, do not send them into the country. I think, again, it's not just, hey, don't send us out into the wilderness. I think he's saying, hey, don't send us to the pit. 
Don't send us to that place apart from this man. So the demons are trying to figure out, hey, he, he's going to send us out. Uh-oh, he's going to cast us out. Where do we go? What do we do? Oh, pigs. <laughs> I think they see the pigs over there. They entreat him means they beg him. They're begging Jesus. And it says in verse 11 and 12, there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons begged him and treated him. Send us into the swine so that we may enter him. Now, everything I read, nobody really knows why they wanted to go into the pigs. But anything is better than the pit, I think is what they're saying. Just send us there. And it says here that Jesus gave them permission. If you look at verse 13, it says he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, in Mark, it says that Jesus yielded to their pleading, but Matthew makes it clear that Jesus didn't yield. He actually commanded. In Matthew 8.32, he says to them, go. Boom, go. Immediately at his word, they depart and enter into the swine. Now, some people believe that, that there's this battle between Satan and God, and sometimes Satan wins, and, and then sometimes God wins, and, but that's not the way it is. At any moment, at any moment, if God wants to, he has total control and power over all demon forces. And how do we know that? Revelation, that's exactly what he does in Revelation 20. I want to read it for you. Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2, he says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and the great chain in his hand, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss. And he shut it. And he sealed it. If God wants to at any moment, he can instantly, they go to the abyss. For some reason, God allows Satan and demons to be on this earth to fulfill some purpose. We know that they had to come to him to torment Job. And we know that Paul said that there was a demon given to him to torment him, basically to keep him humble. And so God may use demon forces, but they cannot do anything outside of his sovereignty. And it says here in verse 13 that he gives them permission. Now, I ask myself the question, why? Why did Jesus allow them to go into the swine? And I think I came up with four four things. First, this is proof that they actually left the man. Right? You can't see. You know, I don't know when I prayed with that woman when she just kind of stopped shaking if the demons or whatever depart. I don't know. I can't see it. But here, this is proof. Wow. Miracle. Everybody knew this guy was demon-possessed. He says, I'm legion. Everybody goes, uh-oh, this guy's got many, many demons in him. And when Jesus says, go, suddenly the pigs go. Right? And so, wow, it's a visible sign that Jesus did a miracle. Two... It shows the massive power that Christ has over the supernatural. I mean, he just displayed power over the natural with with the sea. Now he shows power over the supernatural. Three, it shows the destructive power of demons. Sometimes I think people play too much on the line of evil. And they think, oh, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. You do not want to allow them any foothold in your life. And fourth, it shows that Jesus came to deliver people. Even one man. Now you get a lot of flack from PETA on this one, right? What? 2,000 pigs? All these animals were killed. No, no. The reality is it shows the love of God for one man, even over the things of nature. You were made in the image of God. It shows a great love that he has for every person. 
And it shows he goes out of his way, six miles out of his way to reach one that was the worst of all. And you think there is no way God could love me, the things that I've done. Can I show you? This is the picture of the worst of the worst. If you will submit to Christ, he will deliver you. He will literally change your life. You know, last year in seminary, um, my preaching professor, his name is Ken Edwards, he, um, he had just come off the mission field in India. And he said one day, that he was teaching at a seminary there, they took him to a local church that was two blocks away from a Hindu temple. And he said it was the most extraordinary thing he'd ever seen. He said there were lines of people, and there were two pastors, so there was two lines. And the pastors had these big buckets of oil. And he said, and the people were coming forward to be released from demon possession. And he said, what they would do, they'd stick their hand in the oil and they'd grab the person by the hair and put them down to their knees. They'd put their other hand on them. They'd just start asking Jesus to free them. And he said, his interpreter brought him up next to this woman who was there. And, and this woman was crying out in a man's voice. What are you doing here? Leave us alone. And all of a sudden when he said, in Jesus' name, free her, she screamed kind of went limp and they had these prayer people over on the side and they came over and grabbed her and took her over and started praying with her to receive Christ. He said, person after person, Jesus delivers. And here in America, we don't see much of that, right? And sometimes we don't really know what to do with that kind of thing, but I can tell you, there is a reality to the demon world. And some say, well, hey, I'm not possessed by any demons, so it's no big deal, but I can tell you, many are possessed by sin. And the same delivering power that Jesus shows to release this man from demon possession, he will use to release you from those sinful habits that plague you. The delivering power of Jesus, the destructive power of demons, and the third thing we see, guys, is the enslaving power of sin. This is verses 14 through 17. Sin can so capture your life, even when it's clear, even when a miracle is done before you, you will still deny the living Christ. Look at verses 14 through 16. And the herdsmen ran away, reported it in the city and out in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they came to Jesus and observed that the man who had been demon-possessed was sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him, which is Jesus, to depart from their region. So you have the picture here of the herdsmen. These are the guys that take care of the pigs. And I thought, you know, they're probably kind of like the prodigal son. They're probably very poor. They're not the owners of their pigs. They're probably hired to just watch over the pigs. And they see this whole thing unfold. They know all about this demon-possessed man, right? They give him a wide berth whenever they're in that territory. And, and so they see him. They know all about him. And here's this Jesus guy, and suddenly they see, boom, go, boom, swine, in the water, dead. Uh-oh, we better go tell everybody. So they run into the country, into the city, probably go tell their bosses, hey, we just lost the whole herd. Guess what they're having for dinner? <laughs> for months and months and months, right? They're going to pull them out of the water. But then they come and they see this man. And it says that he's clothed and in his right mind. This is a picture of conversion. Not only has he been freed from possession, but he's been made right. He's in his right mind. And the picture of clothing being made whole. And it's like, wow. 
What an amazing thing that Jesus did for this man. Look at verse 15. It says, And they came out and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. Now, I'm thinking, wow. At this moment, they have a great opportunity. The living Christ is here. The Messiah of the world. Let's bow down. Just like the demons did, right? He's right in their midst. What do they do? No, they become frightened. And they say, get away from us. Do you see the power that sin has to blind a person? The miracle was done right in front of them. But instead of responding in faith, responding in a way that would honor Christ, what they do is they hide in their fear. And they say, get away from me. And how often does that happen? How many people do you know? They come right to the edge. They see the truth. They hear the truth. They even say, yeah, that makes sense. But they will not respond. What is it? It's a hard, cold, sinful heart. These guys are more concerned with the fact that they lost their pigs than they are that this man was made right. And this is probably what they're going to say. How could a God of love have ever destroyed our pigs like that? Instead of, wow, a God of love just saved this man. And how often have we heard people say that, right? How could a God of love done this or that? Instead of seeing how God is constantly reaching out and saving, constantly breaking through hard hearts and redeeming. But these people want nothing to do with it. They are enslaved to their sin, to their greed. They want what they want. I got to tell you, the memorial that, that was preached for Patty was an interesting one for me because I knew Patty really well. And I watched God change her life. I mean, you're talking a drug addict for 10 years. Cocaine's very addictive. And that just means everything in her life was in a shambles. And God restored it. And so here, as we're preaching, it was done here. It was interesting for me to watch the faces because as I began to preach, the gospel message, some people were like, yeah, and others were like hard as stone. And there were a couple of people that were downright mad as I began to share the truth that Jesus saves, that Jesus redeems. And I read a story about a pastor who, who was reaching out to a man by the name of Steve. And Steve basically says this. He says, hey, I don't believe that God could ever forgive me. Maybe 70% of my sins there's no way he can forgive all 100% of my sins. He said, especially for what I'm about to do. See, what Steve was planning to do is he wanted to kill someone. 19 years earlier, Steve's wife was taken by another man. And this kind of drove him crazy. And he actually ended up assaulting an officer and went to jail. But in his arraignment to be sentenced, that man came. And the man sneered and laughed as he was given that time in jail and actually flipped him the finger. And at that moment, that anger and that bitterness, he just wanted to kill him. And so he's, he, tells, he tells the pastor, he says, I'm going to kill this man. I've got a 32 caliber. I'm going to strap it to my leg. This guy's coming into town next week and he is dead. And he says, hey, I've got it all figured out. I'm 63 years old. You know what? I'll have a bed to sleep in. I'll have three square meals a day. I got medical and dental for the rest of my life. No big deal. So at that point, the pastor's thinking, what do I tell this guy? And this is what he said. He says, uh, you know, I get your point. He said, but you yourself are actually already in prison, so it really doesn't matter. You are a slave to your bitterness and your sin. He says, that man's free. But you already are a slave and you already are in prison.
And there might even be many here today that that is how the devil's got a hold on you. Bitterness, it holds you. It enslaves you. That man called the pastor a week later and says, I see your point. He said, I put away the gun. Would you ask Jesus to help me be free? There's the key. Christ delivers. And that's exactly what he did with this man. He freed this man. But the people do what? They say, leave us. This just shows you the hardness of the human heart. We've seen three things. The enslaving power of sin, the destructive power of demons, the delivering power of Jesus. And the last thing is the restoring power of the gospel. The gospel message, it brings restoration. That's what it's all about. It's about reconciliation. We have been estranged from God and God himself has made a way for us to be reconciled. Look at verses 18 through 20. And he was getting into the boat and the man who had been demon possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go to your home and to your people and report to them what great things the Lord had done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim to capitalists what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So this is the picture, right? You have this man. I kind of picture it this way. He's kind of holding on to Jesus' leg saying, no, you're not going. No, you're not going to leave me. Can I just go with you? I'm not going to leave. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. You know, I mean, think about it. If you've been possessed by thousands of demons, I mean, are you going to let the Lord just kind of go on his way? I'm like, dude, just stick next to me. And you know, it was like safety with Jesus. I'm just going to have you close by. So you kind of have this picture where this man is entreating and he's begging him saying, hey, let me go. Let me just stay close to you. But it's interesting, Jesus doesn't. Jesus instead calls him to service. Look at verse 19. He said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things. Now, Jesus says what great things the Lord had done. And this man tells him what great things Jesus had done. Do you see that connection there? Jesus is Lord. It's the word kurios. It was, if it was Hebrew, it would be Yahweh. But since it's Greek, it's kurios, which means God who has power over all. Lord over all. This is a designation of Christ being God right there. But what you see here is the gospel. It says he showed mercy. That's the gospel, guys. The gospel message is what great things God has done. Now, this is how Titus puts it. Titus says, we also... Now, this is, this is the demon-possessed man before Christ. This is him. It says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's him. It says, but... Verse 4 in Titus 3 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love of mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the gospel. This man was lost. He was enslaved to his sin. He was enslaved by demons. God restored him. Gave him mercy. What's interesting is Jesus, instead of bringing him, know what he does? He makes him the very first missionary in the New Testament. This is before the 70 went out. This is before he commissioned the disciples. This is the first guy. He's probably a Gentile. 
And he says, now go, go home, go tell your people. And what's really cool is that's what he does. Is he actually goes out and it says it, it says here that he sends him to Decapolis. If you look at verse 20, it says, and he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. Decapolis was 10 cities. This guy didn't just stop at home. He went to 10 different cities saying what great things Jesus had done. I mean, imagine that. Some of you are going to say, wait a minute, man. This guy didn't have any training. Doesn't he have to go through like evangelism training and missionary training? No, he, he had a testimony. You have a testimony. And we are all commissioned by God to go out and proclaim what great things God has done for us. That's exactly what this guy did. His testimony was, hey... I was demon-possessed. Man, I was a crazy man. I used to break chains and hurt people. And Jesus came and he saved me. And there was already probably a big reputation about this guy anyway. So every town he goes in, they're like, wow, right? He was a witness. And you have a witness within your family, within your workplace. What are you doing with it? He commissioned him. Go. And that's exactly what he did. The gospel restores. That's the point. It restores the gospel message. I want to just share with you a picture of Patty's life. I met Patty. She was all about 90 pounds, right? If you do cocaine for 10 years, you're going to be about 90 pounds. She was sick. She was alone. Her husband and her were estranged. He was living in Hawaii. They're basically getting ready to get divorced. She was alone. She had three kids, but not one of them liked their mom. So they were all estranged from her. She was out of a job and she was being kicked out of her home. She comes to church that one night. By the way, she also had a phobia of going outside the home. So the fact that she came is a miracle. And I watched God begin to restore her life one thing at a time. First, he freed her from her drug addiction. Within the first month, she stopped using drugs. Then he restored the relationship between her and her husband, Paul. He had a job in Hawaii. Well, he got fired. Guess where he had to come back? America. Guess what God did? He recommitted his life and they got restored in marriage. All three of her children, one of them actually came to Christ because of what they saw the Lord do, were restored in relationship. As a matter of fact, at the memorial, one of the daughters said, I finally got my mom back. They were dead broke. I'm talking broke, broke. In fact, they, when I knew them within the first year, they moved three times because they kept getting kicked out of places. God gave Paul a job. God gave him a home. He restored life back to them. That's what the gospel does. That is the gospel message. And that is the picture that we see here with this man. Is the worst of the worst, the one you would never, ever, ever expect. That's the one that God says, I love you. Come to me. All who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. As I went through this message, my heart was kind of torn because it's primarily speaking about a man that doesn't know Christ. So it's an unbeliever who comes to Christ. But I kept being drawn back to the fact that there are too many Christians that live as if God is not in their life. And you have given way too much room for the devil to play havoc in it. And so what I want to do right now I'm speaking to the Christian here. You who proclaim that Jesus is your Savior, He is your God. But you know in your heart that you have some deep-seated sin issues that you are not willing to give up. You need to lay them down at the foot of the cross. 
And I just want us to bow our heads. And you don't need to stand or raise your hand. This is just between you and the Lord. This is your moment to be free, to surrender to Christ what is rightfully His, which is you, and lay everything out. So I want you to pray with me. Let's bow our heads together. If this is you, you can just pray silently. Heavenly Father, my life is a mess. And Lord, I have given myself over to too much sin. I have walked away from you. I have lost that first love that you gave me, Lord. I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you will restore me. I ask that you will free me. In the power of Jesus Christ and in his name, I recommit my life to you. And I will walk the rest of my days with you. In Jesus' name, I pray.